Welcome to the Fitness Nerds Podcast. This is co-host Ryan Smith with Coach Stephanie Holbrook, where we get a chance to geek out on all things fitness. Hi, everybody. Welcome again to the podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Zach Bitter. He is the 12-hour record holder, the world record holder, and the U.S. record holder for the 100-mile ultra distance which is pretty remarkable, but another remarkable part, his diet's a little different than a lot of endurance athletes. And um, he's worked with Peter Defty, who folks have heard on the podcast before, about getting his nutrition dialed in to change it up uh, to become a fat-adapted athlete. So welcome, Zach. Thanks for having me on, Stephanie. I really, really appreciate it. And something I've listened to a lot of your interviews and they talk about the faster study and your race results. But something that I'm really interested in is the nuts and bolts of um, becoming fat adapted, how long it takes and the whole process of um, where you really switched over from a carb burner to a to a fat burner. And um, what uh, what was the main reason that you adopted the um, Optimizing Fat Metabolism program. That's the program that Vespa Power calls their, their fat-adapted program. Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, back in 2011, um, I really started to get into ultramarathons. I've, I've always been a distance runner since since uh, basically high school and college. But, uh, you know, once I started doing ultramarathons uh, more regularly in 2011, uh, I noticed after a really big training block and doing um, three 50-mile races in a nine-week uh, time span that uh, I just wasn't really recovering as quick. And I was noticing a lot of like just like like negative things in my health as well, like waking up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom like multiple times and um, just think, feeling really lethargic in the afternoons. Uh, and just kind of having to force my way through workouts and after school and stuff later in the day. Uh, and I was talking to, to Peter Defty about, about it near um, the end of that season. And he had, he said that, you know, a lot of those things I was seeing are fairly typical in endurance athletes who've been using higher levels of carbohydrate to, to supplement their, their, their energy demands for performance and, and training. So, he uh he kind of pointed me towards the OFM stuff and I uh started tinkering around with it in, in uh 2011 late in the year and uh have been going with it ever since and I saw a lot of those negative things go away and I've seen a lot more consistency in like my mental state during races and things like that so um yeah it's been a a really uh really cool journey cool and what was the, when you first heard about it, were you a little leery or you're like, I am sick of what's going on and I'm willing to try anything? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've never been like a huge, like skeptic about things in general. I've always been kind of willing to, to try different stuff and do like N equals one experiments on myself. And, you know, my, my mindset with a lot of this stuff is always like, you know, worst case scenario is I try it, it doesn't work. And then I go back to what I was doing before. Um, so I guess I, I wasn't really overly overly worried or skeptical or anything like that and it it started working relatively quick so it didn't take very long to really buy in full force the um and it it seems like it's working pretty good if you're breaking world records yeah i mean it's it's been great for racing and day-to-day life and you know for me it was i probably transitioned over a little easier than 
than some people might because I, I always had done a lot of my long runs in a relatively fasted stakes and you know just the sheer volume of training I'd done in the past my body probably wasn't completely foreign to using fat as a fuel source um, just not as its primary fuel source so um, switching over may have been a little more of a, a speedy process than That's what it can be nice. seen in some people yeah did you have a problem tinkering with um, the carbohydrate uh, protein fat ratio uh, did it did it take you a little while to to figure out what the ratio should be for you? Yeah, yeah, it it definitely took some some messing around with, and I've I've spent the better part of the last three and a half years just really fine tuning fine tuning all of that, and you know I've gone to both ends where I've gone a little too low on the carbohydrate, and I feel like you know uh, I was especially on days where I'm doing like two to three different like workouts. Um, you know, I was a little too far on the low end and I've also seen when I've had too much, um, more so too much protein than carbohydrate. Once I bought into the OFM program, you know, I started really liking the food options and stuff on the higher fat approach. So it wasn't too hard to avoid the carbs. Um, in fact, sometimes it's harder to bring them back than it is to, uh, um, keep them low. Uh, but the ratio of the protein, I think was the hardest one for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, just not making sure I wasn't eating just copious amounts of it because a lot of those high fat uh, food groups also have a decent amount of protein in it as well. Um, so just keeping my overall daily protein intake low enough to not like have gluconeogenesis occur too frequently. And then also just in individual meals and stuff, just trying to keep that protein intake down like around 30 grams or lower. So I'm not going well above, uh, what would be your, my body would be able to really process. Really? How long did it, it take? Did you see a dip in your performance when you first adopted the program or do you feel because you had a lot of base running miles without uh, a lot of nutrition that it was easier for you to adapt? Then I know you're a coach as well. Did you, um, do you see variations in the adaptation period in your clients? Yeah, for me, it was, it was actually a good time to do it. Like I, and a lot of times this is what I'll do with coaching clients as well is, uh, I had just finished the last race I was going to do for the season. So I was doing basically just bulk miles. I wasn't doing any speed workouts or anything like that. So when I dropped them down, I definitely noticed like for those first two weeks or so, every once in a while I'd go out for a run and it would be like, you know, I'd be going along at like, a minute per mile slower than I normally would. And I'd feel like twice as like it was twice as hard of a struggle. But after about two weeks or so that kind of leveled off. And then, uh, really it was, it's really interesting because, you know, I had thought that I was maximizing, you know, my fat efficiency for probably the next year and a half. And it wasn't until, uh, the fall of 2013, that I started really realizing some some even more benefits just from being on the program for a couple of years at that point and really having my body start to recognize fat as fuel source and kind of uh, adopting that as, you know, the reality. Right. Has it leveled off of your adaptation or do you feel like you're still adapting? Um, It's really hard to say at this point. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really fat adapted. I know that much, but like uh, really just humans in general probably have a very hard uh time knowing like where the ceiling is with that uh just because 
doing a program like this in is is really kind of new in the sense that new new from a documentation standpoint. Right. I mean, there's been people doing that doing it but not really having any numbers run on them or, you know, going into like performance and looking at that type of stuff. Uh but you know, it, it's one of those things where like in if I do this for ten more years, will I find a new level of fat adaptation? You know, I don't know, maybe. Um so it's one of those things where you just I know it's working for me, so there's no reason to stop. So uh, I'm going to keep competing and training, and if more benefits come up, it'll be kind of kind of cool to see. Right. Do you have any periods where you're like, oh, I you you go, I don't know, off the wagon, or like uh, holidays, or you go to a party and you're like, hey, I'm going to, you know, go a little crazy for a weekend with food. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where where like it, I'm not so like tied down to it where if I do fall off the wagon or something like that, I mean, it'll happen once in a while. It's, it's not too often, but I mean, it does happen. One thing I have noticed though, is that now that I've been doing it for such a long time, uh, relatively speaking that, uh, you know, when I do have something like that happen, it's not, it's not like days to get back, get my, get the, the fat adaptation back. It's like my body has now kind of recognized fat as <clears throat> its fuel source. So, if I have a day like that, you know, I'll go for a run the next day. I might feel a little crummy on that run or something like that. But um, really, uh, by the next day, by the end of the day, I'm is I'm pretty much back into the same groove. Right, you bounce back a lot faster. A glass of wine and already feel intoxicated as opposed to, you know, I could drink a, gl- a glass and a half and and feel a little tipsy. So I noticed for me that that's a big change. Yeah, yeah, I I could definitely relate to that, and I think also like caffeine kind of falls in the same window as that. I feel like um, some of those type of things, like alcohol and caffeine, seem to be your, my body seems to get a lot more sensitive to things like that. So um, a little bit kind of goes a long ways. Yeah, I I agree. Have you noticed that you know with the fat adaptation, you have a lot less hunger sensation um, for most folks? Do you? Do you keep track of like your caloric intake, uh, how much you take in in like in a, on an average day, and can you like compare that to before? Are you? I've read a you know back and forth studies like calories count and calories don't count, um, or in a fat adapted state you just don't need as much food and and a lot of you know there's a lot of variation in that area. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is too really individual with that. Uh, you know, I've heard had people say like I'm eating way more and I'm losing weight, or um, I eat less and you know I've gained weight but it's been muscle and stuff like that, where their body fat percentage is dropping or their their BMI is improving or something like that. Um, it, it's it is interesting, and you know from what I gather, a lot of it has to do with like. Um, like hormone balances, gut biome, things like that, because like I think some of those are like just as critical as the amount of energy you're actually consuming. Like if one of right. those things gets out of whack, it can really throw things off. So like if a person who has has really really messed their metabolism up gets those things back in sync, they may find that they're eating more and losing weight just because they they had messed up their metabolism so badly in the past. Whereas someone who maybe goes into it with a relatively good gut biome or healthy, relatively healthy to begin with, um, 
may actually see some weight gain. And some of that could be like bone density and things like that too, depending on what type of nutrition they had in the past. Right. Um, for me personally, I didn't really, I don't feel like I necessarily lost or gained much weight. I definitely improved in, uh, body mass, uh, like my, my muscle mass increase and my body fat change. I kind of probably like swapped out a few, few pounds on, on those end of things. Cause I could tell that like I got more, more tone and stuff after going to the OFM program. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask a little bit about your food quality. So, you know, switching over to a fat adapted state, do you focus on specific types of fats? Um, the quality of the meats that you eat or, or do you try to opt for more, um, grass fed or pasture type products and, and organ meat? So that's sort of a multi point, multi, uh, fasted question, but does food quality matter? Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where like the program as a whole is a a really large step in the right direction. Um, and then like, if you can get a really clean, good source of meat as well, uh, that's like another step in the right direction as well. So, um, any, if you're in a position to be able to, to spend a little more on the really good meat and stuff, uh, you know, definitely do it. Um, but don't let your an inability to do that be kind of like the the stopping point from that. For me personally, I do a lot of um, I do a lot of organ meat. Um, that's actually probably the most the highest like quality type of meat. Yeah, yeah, the type of meat that I'll eat on a daily basis. I'll I'll usually get a grass fed um, beef or calf liver. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll cut it up and I'll eat like an ounce or two of it every day, um, in one of my meals. Uh, I'll also do a lot with like coconut oil and coconut milk as, as fat products. Um, I think one of the, one of the misconceptions too with the diet is a lot of people think that it's just like eating meat all day, every day, like for every meal. And, um, really it's not necessarily like, like that i mean there there there's days where i have meat multiple times but you know there are also days where i'll have it have it once during the day and i'll get a lot of my fat sources from like you know butter or coconut oil or extra virgin olive oil as well um which when you're trying to get those protein levels down those can sometimes be really good good uh tools right yeah. and um do you do any fermented foods to help with the gut biome or um for folks who've who've had a problem with that in the past with the, like who've really messed up their system. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely focus on that stuff. Like I'll get, uh, I'll get sauerkraut and I'll, I'll usually eat that pretty much daily. Um, and I'll get a, I'll get a pretty high quality like jar of sauerkraut. Um, you know, if I had more time, I'd probably make it myself, but, um, you know, right now it's, it's just, I'd rather just buy it. So I'll, I'll find one that, that it sh- that it says there that it's you know made the right way and it actually has like digestive enzymes and ferment it's really fermented in there and um I'll do like like pickles like that too like fermented not, not, pickles right yeah. yeah like a real fermented pickle not like a generic one that you just see with all kinds of other stuff in it um so yeah I'll, I'll get those and then um I'll buy like uh, some organic, uh, sour cream from time to time that'll have some probiotics in it as well. So I'm getting, I'm getting like one or three or 
more of those products in it pretty much on a daily basis. Oh, that's cool. And for your training and, and your nutrition, do you, uh, do you alter your nutrition as your training schedule changes? So like in base building, are you lower carb? And then maybe whenever you're doing a more intensity, you know, intensity work that you're, you're adding carbs and, and did it take some tinkering to figure that out? Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely cycle the level of carbohydrate I take in um, based on what I'm doing. Uh, like if I'm recovering from a race, that's when I'm focusing on going really low carbohydrate. And I'd be, you know, closer, if you look at like a, a profile of what I'm eating, it would look closer to what you'd see from a, like a clinical ketogenic style diet. Uh, but when I get my training ramped back up and I'm doing like high volumes and speed work and some weight training or something as well, that's when I'll start strategically bringing some of the carbohydrates back. Um, and what I found works really well for me is like if I have a really hard workout on the schedule, I'll try to get um, some carbohydrate in right or like the meal before that that workout and then maybe a little bit after it. Um, so a lot of times that's, I'll just boil up some potatoes and I'll stick them in the fridge and I'll eat the potato cold for lunch if I'm doing the workout after school or something like that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely timed for the stuff that I'm going faster. In the past when I've gone really, really low, like 5% carbohydrate intake or lower, um, just like pretty much all the time, I noticed that that very last gear was really, really hard to get to, uh, and it seemed like I could not hold it as long as I normally would. Did you notice that it, that there were any changes, like going super like 5% low carb and then later adding the carbs? Did you get more of a bump when you added the carbs or, or once you get a baseline of fat adaptation, the, the adding, you're getting the same bump up? Yeah, I think like the more fat adapted I got, the more sensitive I got to the carbohydrates. Um, and I mean, it, it shows up in my race performances as well. Like I used to take in three to 400 calories an hour in a race. And, you know, now I can get away with as low as 100 to 150 in some races. Uh, but like there's definitely a notice like too, like when I do take in that carbohydrate, it's, it's much more effective. Um, you know, if, if I'm going to do a race or a, a workout, you know, some, it's usually only like one potato is all I really need to, to top off the glycogen stores to the point to where they're, they're full enough that I can, I can utilize them. Uh, one thing I have noticed too is like, uh, I can actually stay in a pretty low carbohydrate state, like ketogenic, if I'm like recovering. And then when I do come back, like I can do some fast workouts, uh, without putting the carbs back. And, um, you know, just because I'm giving my body a lot more time to synthesize, uh, the very small amount of fat, I believe it's about 10% of fat that can get converted into, um, like glucose and then, you know, pro excess protein up to 50%. So, you know, if I take like three or four days off after a race and then go out and try to do like a 400 meter workout, I can usually do that just as effectively as I would if I had brought the carbs back because I hadn't been doing like a bunch of workouts leading into that that would deplete my glycogen stores. Oh, that's so some of it, yeah, yeah. So some of it really depends on like what your training program looks like. Um, and you know, that's what I'll get a lot of questions like that. And we'll be like, well, if you were racing 5Ks, would you, you need to get more carbs? And 
you know, it really depends. Like, how is that going to change my training? Like, if I'm not doing as many two-a-days, I probably wouldn't need to bring the carbs back as much because my body would be able to synthesize fats and proteins um, into, like, muscle glycogen as well. Right. The, um, do you ever practice any intermittent fasting or condensed eating windows? Yeah, a little bit. Um, more so when I'm, like, taking downtime or something. Like, the hard part with that for me is, like if say if I if I would wake up in the morning and go for like a, a twenty mile run and do it in a fasted state, if you look at the number of calories I'd be burning from just the window of not eating from supper till the morning and then the twenty mile run, you're looking at what would equate to be like a sedentary person not eating for like thirty six plus hours. Right. So I have to be really careful about doing that as well, just not to get to showing my body like you're sending signals to my body like that food is a a real scarcity as well um but like if i'm if i'm recovering and not running at all i can definitely go go a lot longer without without eating and i can narrow down that that window of time i do eat um and but really even even with the a long morning run it doesn't take a lot like I'll wake up in the morning, I'll make some like yerba mate tea or something, put some coconut milk in it, and maybe have a little bit of raw honey with it. So it's it's not a it's not a ton of calories, it's not a full meal or like a full breakfast or anything like that. It's just enough to like kind of, you know, put a little bit of fuel in my body and then uh, head out. Cool. Do you think that this program works for everyone, or do you think that there's some genetic? variability that lends a person to adapt better in this type of eating than than someone else yeah i mean that's that's a good question it does seem like you know every everyone with a specialized diet seems to think that you know theirs is the the magic thing and um you know from what you know from what i gather i mean there's 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 obviously like a small group of people in my opinion that that could operate on a more high carb, low fat diet and have that not, not really be a, a detriment to their health. Um, and then there's people who, if they do that, their health is going to deteriorate rather, rather quickly. Um, I, I do think, uh, as a whole, a lot more people would benefit from a higher fat approach as opposed to a higher carbohydrate approach. Right. Um, cause I was, so think- I think there's, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just like, because I had read about um, Scott Jurek, and I had tried like a, a vegan diet a lot, like he was eating, and and I ended up being quite a mess from from that. I mean, I got slower and fatter and and injured, and um, and I I just thought you know he performed so well on that and that diet, and so does Rich Roll, that um. And when I switched over to this fat adapted diet, the OFM program, feel better, I look better, I perform better on, you know, in everything in life. And I I think, you know, there's got to be some genetic variation that allows for, for folks to be able to perform so well in that realm. And then, you know, for others to, to not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and Rich Roll is, is is incredibly like dialed in in terms of like making sure he still gets fat sources and things like that too, even from a plant-based standpoint. Um, and I mean, there's other folks like that too, but, uh, I mean, you see, you see folks on like a fruitarian diet who seem to be flourishing as well. And, um, you know, that's something that I just don't think I would be able to sustain. And, 
So that alone tells me that there's likely some variability uh, in genetics or ancestry or something like that where um, certain people can can adapt to you know wide wider ranges of diets than what other people can. Do you see the tide changing though? For I mean, not only bad adaptation, the just in nutrition in general for um, the obesity epidemic is is so huge and. Jeff Bullock and Stephen Finney and a lot of others, um, like Jimmy Moore and Eric Westman, have all really, um, you know, shined a light on fat adaptation and the benefits. And they're still doing they're doing research and, and continuing research on it. But uh, it doesn't. It seems like the word's getting out a little bit, but it's not widespread. If you if you talk to someone, just uh, the general population, about fat adaptation or eating a lot of fat. I mean, they look at you like you're, you're a crazy person. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely um, still in the minority, I think. But there's definitely been some, some big shifts. Uh, I think, you know, even if you look at, like, the New York Times had that, that article out not too long ago where they declared the war on fat as being over and they had a big slab of butter on the cover um, and stuff like that. I know the New York Times has done some stuff as well. Uh, and then certainly in, like, the performance world, uh, they've been a little more ahead probably in terms of uh, dabbling in it and trying out and finding out how effective it is just because usually when people are motivated to to improve a performance or something like that or, or in the health industry, they're willing to try more things and look into it. Uh, so I think like there's definitely some huge shifts with that that are occurring, and I think those will probably continue to shift as the research starts to unfold more and more information about it. Back to training. I'm sorry, my questions. I have like a list of questions. Apparently I didn't put them in very good order. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all right. But um, do you follow, do you use a a heart rate monitor in training? And um, I was reading on on the VESPA site about the OFM program, and Peter talks about using the Maffetone Method Plus 10 when you get fully adapted. So um, is that something that you've tracked and you've noticed that you have to push your heart rate up higher to you or you can and you should push it up higher um, for better performance? Um, I guess I haven't dabbled a whole lot in heart rate and stuff like that. And some of that's just because, you know, I think there's definitely some validity to the Maffetone method and um and how it's used, but I do think the whole 180 minus your age is a very, very simplistic formula, and really the range of the range of human heart rate is much greater than what you could really get away with with doing a, a 180 minus your age. Uh, I think like if you do a, a real like heart rate test to find out what your max heart rate is and stuff, and then start calculating, you probably find better ratios and things like that. Um, so I mean, for me, more it's just it's been a it's been an area where I had I just haven't really strapped on a heart rate monitor all that often to really check out where where my heart rate is at when I'm doing you know just easy pace or tempo threshold pace or like anaerobic type efforts and stuff like that. So um, I don't have a whole lot of personal data from that um, for me, for myself. I have you know I have followed people who who have used the method and who. I have tracked stuff like that, and it does seem that what Peter is saying has has a lot of truth to it. Cool. 
And I, uh, I was just reading an article in the Tailwinds magazine by um, Nancy Clark, and um, she's a, you may be familiar with her, but she's done a lot of stuff for endurance nutrition, and um, she usually really recommends a higher carbohydrate diet, and this article didn't have anything in that about gut biome, and that's sort of the second part of the question about like the tides changing. Do you think eventually that nutrition community is going to adjust where they're like, hey, you need good fats and they're not going to recommend specific carbohydrates? Yeah, I think I think really, you know, that's the direction they should head. And I, I also think that the the whole calorie thing is something that should almost be more or less thrown out the window. And, you know, if we were eating more whole foods in general, that would almost take care of itself. But yeah, I mean, because really like the gut biome, it really does seem like the literature is still relatively, relatively new on this and there's a lot to be found out yet. But um, everything that, that I've seen so far points to like that gut biome as essentially being like a second brain, which is kind of telling your body like what to do. So, you know, if you give it something that tells your body to stop, stop using energy and it's going to you know, you can't even look at a calorie in the same way as if, you know, another nutrient would, would tell that gut biome something completely different. Um, so yeah, I think, I think a lot of that stuff is kind of like frontier research, but, uh, it's definitely something I think people are going to start paying more closely attention to. Well, I agree. I mean, I think that if your gut biome is so important, uh, have you heard of the GAPS diet from? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, you know, a program just to repopulate your gut. I mean, and have a friend who's a GAPS practitioner and, and her stories about how people have, their lives have turned around everything from migraines to losing weight or, you know, autism. So it's pretty, pretty cool the the new steps with that. Do you, um, to diet and stuff, do you follow anything from the Weston A. Price Foundation and their recommendations on um organ meats do you any eat any other organ meat besides liver um i don't do a whole lot of organ meats other than liver uh, not on a regular basis anyway i'm not opposed to them it just seems like liver seems to be the the easiest one to get my hands on um i do follow the western price foundation though uh as i I see as a real valuable tool uh and i know they had an article with a lot of information out there that was pointing to the the benefits of the combination of like an organ meats with the animal fat and the animal protein, uh, working kind of synergistically together as like a really, really potent recovery tool for, for athletes. Um, and then just as people in general for, for overall health. So, I mean, that's something I do try to practice a lot that when I do eat, um, when I do eat my liver, I'll have it with, uh, also have some of the animal fat and animal protein with it as well. Oh, cool. I had, I didn't read that study, and I'm a um, Weston A. Price chapter leader here, and apparently I'm not keeping up with stuff. <laughs> so I think I think that was the Weston Price Foundation that I got that article off of. I know I know Peter sent it to me, so he could probably point point to which one specifically it was. Oh, they it probably was. They do all kinds of studies, which is is pretty cool. Um, they have one about. Um, you know, lots of research on bone broth and raw, raw dairy. And I just, you know, you get busy and miss stuff. The, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's another thing from the Weston Price Foundation that I've really used a lot of is the, the homemade bone broth and 
um, going when, when I I don't drink milk really, but like I do have plenty of dairy through through cheeses and stuff, and I feel like the cheese is better just because there's little to no lactose, and I always try to find a raw a raw version of that as well. Right, and it seems like there's more there's more versions of raw cheese out there than there used to be even a couple years ago. Yep. So it's yeah. easier you, to find. Mm-hmm. If you go to like a Whole Foods or something especially, you can find a bunch of different varieties of either raw or sheep or goat milk as well, or goat cheese. Yeah. So what do you have up coming up in the, the horizon? Do you have any races that you're you're focusing on to maybe break another record? Yeah, so we're actually kind of in the planning stages yet, but it looks like it's going to be a pretty good chance that in, in three weeks I'll be taking another shot at the 100-mile world record out in California. So we're just trying to get the logistics figured out because whenever you try to break a world record, they need to have uh, like a doping agent on hand to, to test your sample and stuff after the race and uh, having the track measured out so they know exactly how far it is and having like all the timing system stuff set up. So... um it looks like we're going to be able to get all that stuff in place though in time. So I guess that's the next thing on the, on, on the agenda. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So have you, um, has it affected your job at all with your notoriety with the, in, um, your race results and breaking records? And I know you're on a lot of podcasts and you're also a school teacher and training for events. So, and a coach. So is, is it, getting more difficult to juggle your time yeah it, it, it's you know it's a it's a big time management thing that's what one of the questions i usually get is you know how do you fit it all in and stuff like that and um you know it it, it it's it's can be tough but it's all stuff that i'm really kind of passionate about so um it's a lot easier to to want to kind of organize things around stuff like that uh i, I think the hardest part is probably getting to races or clinics and things like that during the school year while I'm teaching. Um, when, uh, you know, cause when you have like the full summer off and stuff like that, then it's not quite as easy to bounce out of work when school year is in session. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, where if you like it enough, you, you should try to find ways to make it work and, um, you usually can balance things out. Yeah. Do you ever see yourself becoming a full-time coach and athlete and, and not being a school teacher? Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, the sport has grown to the point where that's definitely a possibility and it's stuff that I've looked into and will continue to look into. And a lot of it comes down to like, you know, how many opportunities do I turn down in the endurance and health industry by remaining a full-time teacher and like, you know, how much more of that would I be able to do by freeing up some of that time? So, you know, it's one of the things I I'll, I consider pretty much at the end of each school year, and we'll continue to do that. Oh, very cool. Well, I wish the best to you in your 100-mile world record attempt. I'll be looking out for it. And um, where can folks find you? Um, I'm If they go to ZachBitter.com, that's where a lot of my, like, coaching and all my blog posts and stuff are located um if they look me up on facebook or twitter or instagram they they can find out some information about me there as well 
Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, and I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the that you having patience through my technical difficulties. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. You're it was welcome. A lot of fun.